Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hi, it's Fraser here. We're about to start the Spike podcast in just a few seconds. But before we begin, I just wanted to let you know a bit about how you can support the show. If you're listening to us via a podcast app like iTunes or Spotify, make sure you've subscribed so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and a review to help new listeners find the podcast? If you listen via YouTube, then make sure you give this episode a like. And while you're there, you can subscribe to Spike's YouTube channel. Make sure you click the bell icon so you never miss any of our podcasts and videos. Even better than all that is giving us a donation. It's donations which allow us to carry on producing free and fearless journalism. One-off donations are brilliant and always gratefully received, but regular donations are by far the best way to support us. We're not asking for mega bucks, though we certainly wouldn't turn that down if you can afford it. A regular donation of just £5 a month can make all the difference. So to recap, subscribe to this podcast and to our YouTube channel. Give us a like or a rating and review, depending on what platform you use, and consider giving us a regular donation. Thanks, and now on with the show. Hello, and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers, and with me as ever, I'm joined by Spike's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike's columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the woke purge, the Brexit negotiations, and an earthquake in East Germany. Is it transphobic to talk about biological sex? I am a firm believer in self-identification and like that brought into UK law because I think we need to end Someone the discussion. They leave the we need to end the discussion on this. We've got to calm this debate down. But that's the point, There's isn't it? This charter doesn't of... calm it down. It actually calls for people to be expelled. Well, the Gender Recognition Act was, was a big step in the right direction, but we need to go further. Labour leadership contenders Rebecca Long-Bailey, Lisa Nandy and Emily Thornberry have each signed a pledge by the Labour campaign for trans rights. Keir Starmer has signed a slightly watered-down version. The pledges include accepting that trans women are women and that there is no material conflict between trans rights and women's rights. It also calls for the expulsion of members for transphobia and calls on the party to fight against so-called hate groups like Women's Place UK and LGB Alliance. Ella, what do you make of this um, row that's brewing in the Labour Party? It's actually really interesting because if you look elsewhere, there's been discussion about the Ashcroft polling of why Labour lost. One of the key reasons was that people didn't feel listened to. Mm. They felt that Labour was talking down to them. And it's exactly this kind of thing that people mean, which is uh, a long list of pledges which say, you must accept this, you must believe this, mm. you must not do this. Uh, it, it's essentially 12 points of hectoring and lecturing people and shutting up any kind of debate about this. I mean, the, the central narrative is you're not allowed to have the discussion around trans rights. And anyone who hasn't been living under a rock for the last five years knows that there's a huge amount to debate and discuss around the issue of trans rights from very specific things like whether or not trans women should be allowed to work in rape crisis centres mm. right up to a more broader discussion about 
gender in general, whether mm. trans women are women and all that kind of stuff. You know all of that. As a nation, we've been talking about it for a very long time. So the idea that these Labour MPs are now signing up to essentially just a, a silencing of all debate and a full stop on that discussion is outrageous, actually, because not particularly because I think I come down on the side of the so-called TERFs and that being a kind of derogatory name of the idea that if you allow a trans individual into a woman-only space, suddenly all hell's going to break loose. But because at this point, you have to say, what is it about women talking about women-only spaces that is so phobic or morally wrong mm. or evil that people like Rebecca Long, Bailey, Lisa Nandy and Dawn Butler have to come out and sign statements about it. It is so conflicting for everything that the Labour Party stands for. I mean, are they going to scrap women-only shortlists? What happens to those? On a side note, it's fascinating to me that someone like Rebecca Long Bailey can get a free pass essentially for, and we've talked about this before, having yeah. questionable views when it comes to women's freedom and abortion rights, um, but gets praised and celebrated online for supporting this war on essentially women's voices in the form of trans rights. The whole thing's pretty ugly. Tom? Well, I thought you really saw how kind of screwed up Labour's moral compass was this week in relation to this pledge, you know, in the context of you know the last few years and the controversies over anti-Semitism. You know, they were at best kind of hesitant to fight the world's oldest hatred. But when it mm. came to the world's newest, quote, phobia, they were desperate to all kind of sign up to this pledge and all to file in behind it. It's, it's interesting. This week, there's been a procession of stories around the kind of trans issue or the trans activism issue, because, yeah. you know, we're not talking about trans people here. We're talking about a certain ideology, a certain campaign um, that is often fought in their name. You know, you had ongoing discussions about the campaigns against trans sceptical academics in academia. So Selena Todd, um, who's an academic at the University of Oxford, was actually recently given um, a security detail to go to um, lectures, is due to speak at the University of Kent. There's been a big open letter demanding that she not speak there, despite the fact her talk has absolutely nothing to do with her views on gender or the Gender Recognition Act. It's, um, but still, people don't want her to be there. There's the Graham Linehan stuff as well that we might get into in a second. And it's just really remarkable, the kind of level of intolerance within this movement. Mm. I know we've said this a lot, but it's worth saying again, as far as it poses as being kind of like the new system civil rights movement, you know, the new movement for equality, the new movement for tolerance. It's really none of those things. You know, what it's really demanding is adherence to a certain ideology yeah. um, and basically trying to meet out punishments to people within certain institutions who don't, you know, toe the line on all of those sort of precepts. And I just think in this point in the discussion, because things, especially in relation to Labour, you know, there's been so, it's been so heated this week. It's really important that we make that kind of clear distinction, which is when we're talking about should trans people be discriminated against? Are they entitled to dignity? Should um, they be allowed to live their lives as they see fit? Of course, no one disagrees with that outside yeah. of a few people on the fringe. The question is whether or not we want to accept an ideology that to large groups of people, including many people on the left and the feminist left, as we've seen, find to be troubling, have bad consequences for women's spaces, etc. And just not to be true. You know, those are the two things that we really need to pry apart at the moment, because any of these people who've been caught up in this, again, talking about some of those feminist people like Selena Todd, Kathleen Stock at the University of Sussex as well, has been heavily protested for um, her positions on the gender recognition 
Prevention Act. None of these people have ever, as far as we can tell, even ever been rude to a trans person. Yeah. Kathleen Stott, funnily enough, is actually on record saying that she's happy to use people's pronouns as they see fit to make them comfortable. This is all about the ideology. This is all about trying to enforce a view of the world on everyone else. And I just think it's so important that we get that clear and we get that message across to people who are tempted to buy the sort of line from the trans activists, which this is all just about being a um, tolerant person. It's not about tolerance, it's about intolerance at this point. I agree completely. And I, and I remember when, you know, these rows started bubbling up a few years ago and, you know, questions were posed as to, you know, what is a woman, what is a man? And and I'll be honest with you, I, I, I didn't think much of it. I didn't really care either way until we were suddenly told that you cannot say that a man has a penis and a woman has vagina until it, it became apparent so quickly that this movement was not just about you know equality for trans people but was um bringing in a certain kind of intolerance and and i suppose maybe that's inevitable because it it is at the end of the day a crusade that is almost entirely about identity and we know that these wars over identity politics tend to be the most fractious tend to have the most um venom inside them and it is about whether, you know, someone can declare something to be true and that can, and whether they can embrace that identity and whether people should go along with it. And so there is that kind of, um, I think it's inevitable that there is that those, um, additional tensions in the, in this yeah. subject. But as you said, Tom, I think it's really important to separate out the issue itself yeah. from the, um, from the censorship of it. But I think just quickly, that's a really important point as well to make, which is the fact that this isn't really a campaign for rights. It's a mm. campaign for recognition of an identity. It's yeah. not saying treat us equal make sure that we are entitled to all of the same freedoms as anyone else. It's trying to say that the way I have, I view myself has to be accepted by you and society and various mm. institutions, regardless of what any of you think. And that's one of the things that really marks it out from it. It's, there's similarities with other kind of identitarian movements now who have a similar kind of politics of recognition, but this is definitely the kind of sharp end of all of that, it feels like. Hello. The fourth point in the pledges put out by the Labour campaign for trans rights is that everyone involved in the Labour Party must accept that trans women are women, trans men are men, and non-binary people are non-binary. Now, that's a, a list of a very small minority of people. I mm. mean, th there's very few people in the UK who are either trans or non-binary or anything else. Just on a kind of broader point, the Labour Party in other aspects is tied up with trying to convince everyone and having failed to convince everyone that therefore the many, not the few, they're currently in the midst of an existential crisis of you know needing to get a, a woman in a position of leadership, um, so preferably someone with an accent. How do we tune in mm. with all those Northern voters along the reservoir that we lost? And having these, uh, these kind of flagship issues, pledges being around trans issues which is mm. a minority issue and even more of a minority issue because the vast majority of trans individuals do not sign up to the kind of censorious and you know extremist uh, policies of trans campaigners half of you just wants to laugh because you think you're just consigning yourself to a continual electoral failure because the underlying message of all of this is that there is a right way to think and yeah. a right way mm. to speak and a right thing to believe in. And that's been Labour's problem for a very long time, external from the trans discussion, is that you idiot masses out there have to have an education from us, the enlightened Labour Party. I mean, that, along with Brexit and everything else, that tone is why they lost in 2019 and why they will continue to lose and fail to connect with people because you know, people are smarter than being susceptible to just swallowing this wholesale. 
One of one of the things that that has fascinated me and you know has fascinated Spiked is is the embrace of the the trans movement by the establishment. So you know, yes, it's the Labour leadership candidates that are taking on this extreme pledge, but let's not forget that it was the Conservative government that wanted to introduce basically self identification yeah. reforms to the Gender Recognition Act, uh, prompted by absolutely no one. You know, there there was no um, mass campaign for this for this change. Um, the SNP in Scotland has just introduced um, new gender recognition uh, legislation. Again, you know, there just aren't enough um, actual trans campaigners to to really kind of make a make a, a mark in in the public space. But they are very influential in. Um, within the corridors of power, you know, they have quite influential lobbying groups and things like that. And, and I think that, you know, government ministers really feel the weight of pressure to be on the right side of history on this mm, issue no, definitely. as they see it. No, it's, it's been so striking how much they've been kind of pushing an open door and there's almost not any door there. It's really striking how quickly these things have kind of crept into discussion. I think it's also striking how much is kind of ignored in terms of what is going on in relation to this particular debate, you know, especially because this week, you know, there's been a lot of infighting in Labour, a lot of saying, you know, why would we permit this kind of hatred within our ranks? And you think, where is the hatred really in relation to this discussion mm. at the moment? You know, again, going back to some of those um, feminist academics who have been really getting it in the neck on campus in recent years. There's one woman called Rosa Freeman. She's a professor of law at the University of um, Reading. Um, and over the past couple of years, she's recounting the most horrendous kind of like harassment she's received. You know, someone pissing all up her office door, being confronted by a protester who called her a Nazi who deserved to be raped. Mm. And you hear that kind of language all and all the time, you know, the kind of language of turf and it, it, it feels so incredibly kind of like hate filled and often quite misogynistic. You don't really hear these stories. And when they are brought yeah. up, it's just, it's accused of being kind of cherry picking to the end of some kind of transphobic agenda. Um, if you go to, um, turfisaslur.com, you can see a whole range of the kind of, just outright misogyny that is directed at any, particularly women who who criticise the transgender movement. And and the thing, the, the kind of heat of this discussion, it's interesting because you've got so many people in the establishment who have very quickly kind of capitulated this ideology without really thinking about it, you know, there, mm. and there's a lot to think about in all of this. I think one of the things about the kind of intolerant tactics of the trans movement at the moment is that it points to how flimsy the ideology is mm. really because the more you're trying to get people to say things they don't believe or say things they haven't thought about or in many cases try and get get people to say things which basically don't seem to reflect observable reality you yeah. do have to inflict these kinds of tactics you mm. do have to make the price for non-adherence incredibly high and you know yeah. the kind of experiments in thought policing grand or small always rely on that kind of level of fear but it, there's, there's an element of just this particular ideology it's, it's by dint of how weak it is in many mm. respects and how lacking in popular support the extremes of it has that they feel the need to resort to these tactics it feels like in terms of, I mean, we talk about identity politics a lot on this podcast and the broader picture as well is this fight over trans rights has come out of a larger unwillingness among feminists on the one hand and other members of ident proponents of identity politics to trust people and have open discussion. So it's, it's hard to not say, I told you so to the feminists are now getting banned mm. when they in previous years have argued for politicians who have made off color jokes about women or whatever it is to be banned. Glenn is another example. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. A perfect example of someone who is only now learning the real fullness of why you believe in freedom of speech, but it's just it ha people don't say it enough. 
enough. In general, people are very progressive around issues about gender and identity. And, you know, actually most people don't care whether you call yourself he or she or what you dress like. But it's the warring space of identity politics that tries to make this an issue. Mm. And actually the vast majority of the rest of the electorate would like to talk about, you know, HS2 or whatever the other things are going on rather than this sniping in between identity groups is tiresome. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. The UK officially left the EU on the 31st of January, but Brexit is by no means over. Talks on a free trade deal begin in earnest next month, but both sides have already started setting out their positions. On Wednesday, the European Parliament called for the UK to stay aligned to EU rules. This was rejected by Downing Street. Joining us down the line from Brussels is Bruno Waterfield, Brussels correspondent for The Times. Bruno, first of all, can you tell us what the EU is looking for from these talks? The EU has a big problem. Uh, while Britain is geographically, culturally, historically still part of Europe, after Brexit, that doesn't change at all, Britain will be outside of the regulatory order that is the European Union. That's the regulatory order of the treaties, that supreme higher body of law that sets all kinds of policies, um, but also means the European Court of Justice is the Supreme Court for the territories of the European Union. So Britain is outside of that. Um, and Britain's size, British economy is roughly a fifth of the EU's total economy. The British economy is, is larger than the combined economies of 18 of the EU's uh, member states. And it's close proximity. It's 21 miles away um, from uh, Calais. I mean, that's quite a challenge to the EU's regulatory um, order and that's what the EU is. It is a legal order. So, despite all the assurances we have from people like Ursula von der Leyen, the, the president of the European Commission et al., about how friendly relations are going to be um, after Brexit, the, the EU is going to have to wake up to the fact that right on its doorstep um, is a country that is outside of its regulatory order, um, a country that can take decisions very, very quickly. Uh, important EU decisions uh, in terms of regulatory bits of law take about five years. Um, the EU proceeds at the pace of its slowest member state. It takes decisions that have to be agreed by 27 countries, which is quite often means that the, decision, the quality of the decisions you take are the lowest common denominator, and it goes pretty low. So the EU has got to wake up to the fact that suddenly, on its doorstep, very, very close to it, is a country that will take decisions for itself. So the world moves along in a fair old clip at the moment. You've got new technologies, you've got external events such as the coronavirus, and Britain will have a great advantage outside the EU's regulatory order. It will be able to take decisions quickly. The quality of the decisions will certainly be better for Britain because it won't have to proceed at the slowest rate of the slowest of 27 
um, EU member states, and it will also be able to take decisions that aren't at the level of the lowest common denominator of 27 countries with very, very uh, different um, interests. So that's the EU's big problem, is how does it digest having this great big regulatory rival right on its doorstep? And not only a regulatory rival, but a regulatory rival that because of politics, because of the politics of Brexit, is re-gearing um, its economy, is re-gearing industrial policy, it's re-gearing uh, politics. And that's that's quite something for you to think about. Tom, have you got anything to add? Well, it's interesting that there's a kind of a bit of a sense on this side in Britain that Britain finally kind of knows what it wants and that it's finally serious about Brexit implementing it but also what that means you know we've seen Michael Gove recently speaking to businesses who trade with the EU saying look there are going to be trade barriers there is going to be friction because that's what leaving the EU means you know we've had uh, Boris Johnson giving his speech in Greenwich a couple of weeks ago where he was talking about rejecting the demands for level playing field with the European Union in exchange for a trade deal talking about how the freedom to diverge is really important even though we won't necessarily diverge in all instances all of that sounds relatively encouraging Mm. you know um, from a Brexiteer perspective but I guess my question for Bruno is how firm a position does he think that is Um, and also how much do you think Bruno that you could imagine that there's going to be some backsliding on this as the negotiations go forward in terms of the detail and and there will be some devil in the detail we don't really know the government's position what does seem to be clear is the government isn't talking about regression the government isn't talking about tearing up you know labor standards or, or or even environmental standards but what the government is very clearly saying is that brexit means that it will diverge from the european union because it will take its own decisions the idea that britain isn't going to take its own um decisions the idea that britain isn't already taking its um, own decisions look at the cabinet reshuffle and what that probably means for economic policy but we don't really we don't really know yet i mean a lot of the tough language is for sort of opening bid for um the government it, it helps concentrate the eu's mind because the eu knows that um, for example the tariffs will be a nice little revenue uh, earner for the treasury which can be plowed back um into the economy the eu is desperate to avoid uh, tariffs at the moment not least because uh, the eurozone european economy is faltering because of the a trade conflict between the United States and China. You add Brexit into that, it looks pretty, uh, pretty grim for them. So they they want to deal, but it's very much the the opening days um, of that battle yet. And I also suspect that within the government, you know, particularly Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, would actually like Brexit to to disappear as an issue, so he can uh, get on with reinventing the Conservative Party as the new sort of One Nation Party of a real a realignment in in British politics. So. It's early days yet. The negotiations begin in March. Uh, the Prime Minister Johnson has said that he wants it all over by the end of the year. That's a phenomenally tight deadline that either means he's leaning uh, towards uh, not having a trade deal, which means WTO tariffs and all the rest of it, um, or that he's pretty confident uh, that he's going to sort of roll over and do a fairly sort of fudgy, dirty deal with you. Ella, do you want to add anything? The question I've been thinking about is what, and at the risk of sounding like, uh, you know, a BBC presenter asking the European correspondent what the feeling in Brussels is, because it's been interesting looking at how the UK is dealing with this new relationship. Like earlier in the year, there was all this guidance put out to staff and the government saying, you're not allowed to use no deal. You're not allowed to use deal. You're not allowed to use this kind of language. You have to talk about it as a transition period, basically being incredibly 
Con- not conciliatory, but trying to sound like everything's smooth with our mm. European partners. It's going to be nice. We're going to have good relations. And uh, on both sides, there's obviously a huge amount of talk of wanting to keep things extremely friendly. But the reality is that the, the UK leaving the European Union would be a massive blow for that institution. Uh, and also more generally, if the UK is going to, and hopefully it will, strike out on its own more and refuse to be brought in with certain regulations you know, is the European Union frightened that other countries are going to follow suit? I mean, we would hope that they would because mm. our, all along our argument has been that it's not just about the UK leaving the European Union and then maintaining a friendly relationship. We think the institution um, should crumble as a result of other nation states leaving it. So, uh, Bruno, how, what is the state of play in Brussels? How do they genuinely feel about this whole situation? The EU has this fundamental problem is that that over over time, um, Britain's going to be outside the EU, and no one thinks that Britain is going to become a basket case. No one thinks that Britain's about to go down the tubes um, and become, you know, uh, like the, the collapse of the Soviet Union in the late 1980s. No one really believes that in five to ten years' time, um, Britain isn't going to be prospering. And that does present somewhat of an existential problem um, for the EU because you know over the years um, in the run-up to the referendum but even before then we had lots of very important um, EU worthies including uh, national leaders such as Angela Merkel basically saying the EU is all that stands between you know civilization and barbarism get rid of the EU and you'd return to European uh, world wars and all the, all, uh, all the rest of it so that's a bit of a problem um, in the longer term, in the shorter term, um, in fact, this is there's going to be a train crash summit um, next week. They have to deal with um, Britain not being part of the EU, which is uh, going to cost them over their next seven year spending program because they organise their their spending and budgets over a seven year period. Brexit means they've got a big black hole in that budget of around about seventy five billion um, euros. That means a lot of countries are going to have to pay more because of the way the budget. Is structured. That means some countries are going to pay a lot more um, than other countries. So, for example, France, because it does very well out of the EU budget, because the French have always made sure that all the European uh, trade-offs and Germany's war guilt mean that they do very well out of the, the budget. France is going to pay about two billion extra a year to help fill that black hole. Germany will pay ten billion extra a year. The Dutch, uh, a country, uh, the Netherlands, being a third of the size of French GDP. The Netherlands is going to pay 3.5 billion euros more, and those countries simply are not going to have it. So they want their version of the British rebate. So one of the things that happened when Britain left two weeks ago, lots of French people, particularly, were saying, "Oh, this is the end of the British rebate. This is the end of a terrible Le Czech uh, Britannique, as they call it. Um, isn't it good? All these budgetary wars are going to be um, over." But actually, next week the EU plunges into its absolutely vicious budgetary war because lots of countries are going to say, well, why should we pay the most um, to pick up the tab um, for Brexit? So the the EU's got its problems literally in the uh, week ahead. We were told after Brexit, well, there'll be no more. The British were always very transactional about the EU. They were always saying, you know, we put money in, but we get less out. And won't those days, won't won't the EU march on to sunlit uplands because all that is over? Well, next week, they are going to have an absolutely vicious row over how to um, deal with the budgetary consequences um, of Brexit. So while Brexit has been a sort of morality tale because of the collapse of governments, Theresa May and all the rest of it, behind it all, the EU still has its problems. Some of them are very traditional problems, 
uh, and some of them are new. But really, you know, in, in focus next week is going to be how the EU can't even agree who should pay to pick up the tab for Brexit. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher and more. And if your provider allows you to, why not give us a rating and a review while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. A local election in a small state in East Germany has had explosive consequences for the whole of the country. In autumn last year, Thuringia held elections for its state government. The left party, Die Linke, came first, followed by the populist right AFD, or Alternative for Germany. This raised huge problems in forming a government. The CDU, which came third, had maintained a cordon sanitaire against both the right and left parties until now. Local CDU politicians worked with the AFD to elect Thomas Kemmerich from the small Free Democratic Party as the state premier. The breach of the cordon sanitaire sent shockwaves that reached the top of German politics. Angela Merkel's protégé, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, has resigned as leader of the CDU and will not fight the next elections as expected. Tom, um, there's a lot to unpack in this, but mm. what, what are your initial thoughts? Well, obviously, you all know more about German politics than me, Fraser, following it much more closely than I do. But I think it's really interesting how, um, for the CDU, the cordon sanitaire, so this kind of idea that you have to close ranks against certain extremes within mm. politics, went in birth, both directions because De Linke, um came top of the election. They won about 31% of the vote, just came a little bit short because the SPD and the Greens, who they would normally form a coalition with, um, fell a little bit short of the mark. And yet, because of all of these manoeuvrings involving the AFD and the CDU, it ends up with this tiny 5% party yeah. um, actually taking the premiership in that situation. So that's kind of interesting. Obviously, they, the CDU want to kind of close ranks against the AFD, but also it's not going to go down well with their voters actually allying with a with a party with its roots in East Germany and all the rest of it. But it's just interesting how this politics is a cordon sanitaire which exists across Europe in relation yeah. to populist, often right populist parties, how it's really coming under strain at the moment because these revolts are not going away. Um, mm. you, in a lot of places, people are building more and more support. Of course, the AFD are the effective opposition at the moment in Germany and in other places, people are actually genuinely contesting for power. In some places, you, you see it kind of starting to soften. You know, I mean, Sweden, the Sweden Democrats are topping polls. They certainly were at the end of last year, last time I checked. And there's been some softening amongst some of the conservative parties there about do we deal with them? But it's just a really interesting question at the moment because on the one hand, of course, um, parties are right to work with whoever they please. And if there's a particular individuals they think are so completely against their beliefs and their interests, they're entirely open to not work with those people and not go into coalition with those people. But what strikes me is that across the piece, you're just seeing the kind of idea of the cordon on head just being expanded in yeah. so many different respects. And even when parties don't necessarily want to go into government with people, that's fine enough, but they're not particularly in the case of the CDU, feeling like they're not even responding to yeah. the dynamics which have allowed parties like the AFD to come to prominence in the first place. You know, it's one thing to say we don't want to work with these people. It's another thing to try and almost, by focusing so much on them as a party and how toxic they are and how much you want to isolate them, almost completely dismiss the forces that brought them to prominence in the first place, which is a lot of these concerns around sovereignty. You know, in Germany, the migrant crisis is different in different places. So it just feels like it's really coming under strain, um, not just because people are refusing to work with certain parties, but they're refusing to kind of accept 
or to in any way grapple with or respond to the discontent that has brought those parties to the fore in the first place. It feels yeah, like. yeah, that's exactly right. And ironically, it's not helping the parties that are holding the line in a way because what has happened is, and this has been really clear in Germany. You know, not only in the in the national government, you've got a coalition between the centre left and the centre right party, which you know really bolsters the case for saying they're both the bloody same. And, you know, if you want an alternative, you've got to vote for the alternative for Germany or the left party. And, and you see across various states in Germany where you're, you're seeing coalitions forming between the centre-right, the centre-left and the Greens and various other kind of formations of mainstream parties, all to keep out the AFD, all to just basically isolate them and outmaneuver them. And at some point, you know, that is going to stop working because, yeah, the AFD is not the biggest party, but they represent a significant block of voters. And, you know, those voters cannot be ignored forever. I think one of the real takeaways from um, the recent kind of crisis in Germany is is the collapse of um, the CDU. The CDU is probably the most successful centre-right party in Europe. Uh, certainly it's most successful in Germany. You know, they've provided the German Chancellor for 50 of the 70 years, you know, after World War II. It really was once a party that could um, look to all sections of society for support. You know, Angela Merkel's been in government for 14 years, but now that seems to really be crumbling. It's losing its liberal voters to the Greens, its right-wing voters to the AFD, its even alienated farmers, its most loyal supporters recently, who have, you know, staged huge protests in Berlin. And I think sometimes this, the story of um, the kind of populist revolt is not so much that voters are attracted to, you know, mad right-wing parties um, like the AFD. It's actually just that they want an alternative. They've got nowhere to go. Uh, well, as Sabine Beplashbal pointed out in her column for Spite, they keep making the same mistakes. So the CDU General Secretary, in response to all of this, it called for, as Sabine points out, called for um, a cross-party sort of non-partisan technocratic leader. I mean, mm. that's exactly mm. what the AFD says is a problem yeah. that these parties, the CDU and others don't respect democracy. And, you know, it has to be said that a party like the AFD is playing the long game mm. because they know that the more parties across Europe do the kind of cordon sanitaire tactic, the more they put their fingers in their ears and say, this isn't happening, you know, yeah. ignore the populists, um, ignore what they're saying and, you know, to a certain extent, smear them all as fascists, then it's just more fuel for the fire of, and more more power to the arguments of the AFD because they're literally being proven right that they are mm. the only alternative. I mean, the other thing is there are particular figures within the AFD like uh, Bjorn Herker, who's the leader of the party in Thuringia, who is particularly objectionable and you know, even members of his own party in other parts of Germany dislike him. There was yeah. this incredible moment on this German television station, ZDF, where AFD MPs were interviewed and quoted lines from um, Björn Herker's book and asked whether it was Mein Kampf or his book. And most of the MPs said it was probably Mein Kampf because it was so extreme. And he talks <laughs> yeah. about Germans needing to be wolves, not sheep, talking about a decaying state, using all these things that he knows are buzzwords and phrases that hark back to the actual time of Nazism. Um, but someone like him doesn't go away and doesn't yeah. get defeated by people continually blocking him out and saying that he's not even up for debate mm. or discussion. Those views 
if left to fester, end up in uh, large sections of German society turning towards, you know, not even particularly being that far right or extremist when it comes to immigration or other things, yeah. but being so frustrated with the other parties that they have more of an ear for someone like Björn Herke. Mm. So tactically, this is just crazy for the CDU and other parties to go on like this. I mean, yeah. he's, he's so out there, he's even caught a lot of flack from within his own party. Yeah, he's, he's, in, he's, a, he's in a faction called uh, The Wing, which mm. is the right of the right, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> The right of the far right. I thought that was one of the things that um, really made the attempt at kind of moral equivalence that the CDU and Turingia side tried to strike between Delinka and the AFD in that situation so yeah. ridiculous because um, Ramelov, who's the guy heads up um, Delinka in that part of Germany, is actually considered quite moderate in yeah. comparison to this guy. <laughs> I don't believe in the horseshoe theory anyway, but like it's still, you know, it's, it was interesting that they decided to go down that road. I think mean, on Ella's point about, you know, delegitimizing certain points of view, you know, even particular parties aside, it's fascinating that what qualifies as extreme, what qualifies as things that we don't want to listen to, it just feels like it is expanding over and over again. So in the last couple of weeks in Britain, we've had this minor controversy, or at least it, it's, it hasn't really broken through that much public discussion of Daniel Kaczynski, who's this yep. Tory MP who attended a conference on kind of national conservatism or kind of a kind of form of right populism, I guess, in um, Italy. Matteo Salvini was supposed to be there. He didn't show up, as it turned out. Um, Victor Orban gave the closing address and he was forced to apologise for attending. And it was a really kind of striking moment, I think, because, again, you can disagree with the politics of Victor Orban. You can disagree with the politics of Matteo um, Salvini, but I think it's really interesting as well the kind of the role that Orban plays in this kind of whole mm. discussion as well, because Orban and Poland as well, to um, to another extent, is that the cordon sanitaire seems to now cover large parts of um, Central and Eastern Europe. Yeah, um, the the politics which is really kind of bedding in there is is something which is seen as beyond the pale. Also, even though some of these people are literally elected politicians um, who you have to engage with Um, and it just strikes me as really really strange and I think in this country we really saw the nadir of of this type of attempt to just you know shut these people out and how much that kind of politics can kind of be a abused to quite sensorious sense with the last European elections and the last general election in which you had Labour pretty explicitly trying to paint the Brexit party and to some extent the Conservative party as a far right party. Yeah. So we're far away from the kind of cordon sanitaire tactics previously where it's like there are genuinely extreme people out there who we don't want to work with, we don't want to legitimise whatever. It's just become a kind of free floating idea to try and isolate people you don't like to try to demonise mm. them and increasingly to try to delegitimise the kind of populist revolt that takes different forms all across Europe and to try and just paint it as something ugly and strange and therefore doesn't need to be dealt with. Um, and it just feels like, as you've mentioned a bit in relation to the CD, you're just storing up so many problems for the future the more you go down this route rather than trying to understand these parties, these movements on their own terms and work out if you disagree with them so much how you can counter them rather than just shame them constantly. You've been listening to the Spiked podcast. For more Spiked content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.